0: Stealing in as relapse comes up above the
1: Welcome to episode 428 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Catonsville, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus.
2: And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch.
1: And we will soon be joined by, I actually don't remember if we even asked Stephen where he was. I don't remember where he was anyway. Um, Stephen Flavel, who may be better known to those of you who know him as Jorbs. Uh, so he did used to be a professional poker player some time ago. He's best known as a strategy game streamer, specifically a game called Slay the Spire, which may be familiar to some of you. Um, to those of you, For those of you who are not familiar, we do talk some at the beginning of the interview about what exactly it is. Um, it has some similarities to poker. It is in part a card game. I would say it has more similarities to a game like Magic, like a deck building game. Um, game that's that's kind of the heart of what it is is a deck building game but there's a lot more to it than that uh the interview also didn't end up being tremendously about that so if you don't know or care what slay the spire is i think that's fine and you'll still get funny out of the interview uh as, as someone who doesn't know or care carlos would you say that's accurate
2: yes i would definitely agree um steven um just had like a uh a great personality and sense of humor anyway so if you if you just like good conversation you'll enjoy this interview
1: It reminded me a little bit of talking to like Tommy Angelo. I felt like he had a very um yeah, a very like grounded, soothing, kind sort of presence.
2: Yeah, yeah, he did. Especially when he talked about some of the the dark side of the streaming world. Mm -hmm. Like he really had a an approach to it that was like kind of understanding of the people that cause a lot of the chaos as opposed to like, you know, um, feeding the trolls, which um, I, I like when people take the higher role in those sort of situations.
1: Yeah, that's a great insight. And I that was, I thought one of the highlights of the interview was the two of you comparing notes of getting trolls. I and mean, obviously he's on a, a much larger scale than you were, but dealing with trolls on your various I've just, I've never streamed, I think for more than maybe like 20 people. So right. I've not really had to, to deal with that, but it was interesting hearing the two of you uh, compare notes on that.
2: Yeah, I think my highest was like three or four hundred and his probably like constantly in the thousands. So, yeah, different stratosphere, um, but it was a good conversation to have. Yeah. So
1: very interesting coming up with him. A lot of different stuff that we talked about, including uh, in addition to the um, streaming stuff, he wrote a whole book about the the darker side of um, streaming and the kind of the content creation world. So it was some interesting stories coming out of that. And as I mentioned, he was a professional poker player for a while. So we do even get he actually asked us kind of a strategy question, which I should uh, tell people we talked about uh, an episode. I referenced an episode that we did recently with Nate, where It's kind of the same question that Stephen asked us, which was, uh, you know, uh, Stephen was asking kind of since 2011, like what's new in poker strategy, which is a pretty big question. But um, we did a whole episode with Nate back in November. This was episode 421, where we were just catching Nate up on kind of what's new in the last two to three years of poker strategy. So I referenced that in our answer to Stephen, if you have not heard that episode, but you're interested in that answer, uh, 421 is the place to go for that. Anything you want to talk about before we get into strategy?
2: No, no, let's do it.
1: All right. So, this strategy question comes to us by way of our Patreon a patron named Matthew. So if you are interested in uh, hearing more of our strategy segments like this one, you can get them five days a week by supporting us at patreon.com slash daily. That gets you, again, access to three or five, depending on the tier that you choose. Uh, strategy segments from Carlos and me, uh, we dive right into it. We do at least 10 minutes. Uh, typically, I'd say the average episode is probably closer to 15 minutes in length, and we have a great time doing them. Lots of good strategy, like what you will hear in this upcoming hand. So Matthew played this hand at the Horseshoe Indianapolis. He'd been at the table for about two hours, was running well, taking down lots of pots without showdown. Uh, occasionally, even preflop raises not being called, which is kind of rare in a 1-2 uh, game, but he pulled it off. <laughs> uh, the primary villain is a player I've seen around and played with a few times. I don't have a good read on his overall play style other than he seems competent. He has the effective stack with about $600. This is a 1-2 game, uh, but there is a straddle to six. So this ends up being 100 straddles. There is, specifically, this is a button straddle. Both of the blinds complete the straddle, and our hero is under the gun with 9-5 suited. What's your play?
2: Both? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would wonder, so he said he took down a lot of parts pre flop. That seems weird. He said he's occasional pots preflop. Oh, okay, occasional. Gotcha, <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I was going to say that's rare in us in a game that has straddles. Like, people really like to defend those straddles. So even if I imagine the spots where he did take it down preflop, there was probably no straddle. And so it's very unlikely he's going to be able to take it down preflop when there's a button straddle. So... I'm not opening just honestly like even a, a normal range, so I'm definitely not going to get as far out of the line as not far suited.
1: Yeah, and in in his defense, uh, Matthew does admit that this is a mistake and just said this is the kind of thing that happens sometimes when you're running well and get carried away, which I've certainly experienced myself. I think it's good to be aware that you're prone to this kind of thing and ideally try to defend again. Like now that you're aware, there's a thing that happens. You can say, okay, I'm running well. It's going to be more important. For me to maintain my pre-flop discipline, and I think that saying that to yourself explicitly in the moment, so not just saying it in advance of the session or kind of acknowledging it now as you hear it, but actually while you're playing, maybe even write it down somewhere, like you know, o- open up a uh, a note or whatever on your phone and literally write down like focus on preflop discipline, and I think that'll help you commit to it. So like it's it's good to be aware of of your leaks, but then you want to take actions when when you know the trigger has occurred, like you have, you you are running well and you're going to be tempted to play more hands. Pre-flop. I think this can also happen just if the table feels really soft and you're like, oh, I'm much better than these people. A lot of being much better than them is pre-flop hand selection. So yes. if you if you give that away <laughs> and you're like, well, now I'm playing, you know, all the same bad hands they are, honestly, maybe even worse hands <laughs> than they are. Like it's hard to get a lot worse than this. You know, are you better than them? So I, I think that's just yeah, I don't want to belabor this too much, but I think that's a, a good uh, tool for handling this kind of like positive tilt. Exactly. And you raised a very good point, Carlos, which is that you should actually be tighter in this situation than you typically would be under the gun. Uh, not only is there a straddle, which the straddles, I mean, they've already put money in the pop line, so that's a pretty good indication that they're in the mood to gamble, but specifically, this is a button straddle. So you should expect that you are you are very likely to get called by a player who has position on you. You should be very tight here. Like I'd be folding 10 nine suited. Yeah. In his hands, which is a massively better hand than this, like like,
2: so much better than this,
1: and I would still fold it. I'd be folding pocket sevens. I think pocket eights is close. Like you need to be very tight when there's a button straddle and you're under the gun.
2: Yeah, agreed. It's it's just. I mean, also with this being a low stakes game, not only are you. Almost guaranteed to get caught by the button, but there's a very high chance someone is going to call even before it gets to the button. So not only are you going to be out of position, you'll very likely be out of position multi multi-weight. And neither of those things are good for you with uh, the bottom of your range. So, yeah, I agree. I'm going to be very tight in this spot.
1: Yeah, very well said. Um, our hero does raise to $20, there are four callers, and Matthew says, the big blind somehow folds, question <laughs> mark, which is a little surprising, but um, especially because they did complete the first time around, like the blinds had to act first because there was a button travel, uh-huh. so the big blind has already v uh, but then they do decide to fold at this point, which whatever. So we're going to the flop four ways, holding nine five of clubs, and the flop is ace, queen, seven all clubs. And Matthew says, Yahtzee, bad play rewarded. Uh, He says, when I lead on a monochrome board, I like to bet small with my whole range. And I'm not entirely clear whether he means he would bet his entire preflop range or just that any hand he's going to bet, he's going to bet small. The latter I would agree with. I think that monotone boards do tend to incentivize larger bet sizes, four-way pots, sorry, smaller bet sizes. Four-way pots also incentivize uh, smaller bet sizes. Four-way pots also incentivize not betting your entire range. Um, so if, if if what he means is you just bet any hand that you raise pre-flop, I do think that would be a significant mistake. Like if you had nine five of diamonds here, I think that would be a very bad bet. Yes. Um. Other than that, are we on board with quarter pot with uh, having flopped with flush?
2: Yes, uh, I am on board with pot. He does say that I'm going to give him credit for naming his target. So he says that I'm targeting the king of clubs and some middling aces. I like the fact that he's naming his target, but I wouldn't consider the king of clubs a target, especially for this small size, because that hand is not making a mistake when it calls you. So the middling aces are better targets to have in mind when you're making this bet.
1: I'm glad you caught, I didn't even see that in there, but yeah, this is this is a pet peeve of mine. So I'm gonna give him partial credit for, for identifying targets. The, I, I think that ideally you want to choose a single target or at least one class of hands as a target. So like choosing ASACs is fine as a target. the The whole point of choosing a target is to help you decide what to focus on. So just naming all of the hands that could call you that you're ahead of is not targeting. Targeting is deciding of the various hands that you could get action from, which are the most important ones to focus on. And what you're looking for is generally you're looking for a strong second best hand, a hand against which you are a big favorite, but that will feel like a strong hand to your opponent and also that is a significant part of their range. So I do think ace fits that bill. I think it fits better than, say, a lower flush or two pair or a set. Those are all hands that are like they're they're pretty unlikely and they're also in some cases they're so strong like if your opponent does have a lower flush it's probably not going to matter very much what you do so i think those are not the best hands to focus on i think asex is the right target to choose but the whole point of targeting is to be as specific as possible to help you make your decisions and then once you've identified asex as the target like exploitatively there might be a reason to bet more than quarter pot in a kind of loose passive game. Like if someone has an ace, they're maybe not folding it for half pot. So I mean, once you have that target, then that helps you to start to think about those exploitative possibilities. But as you said, the king of clubs is not a great target. Not only is it not making a mistake, but like, I don't know that you're making that much money betting into it. I mean, equity wise, you're a favorite, but it's, it's not the kind of hand that's going to put in a lot of money from... That very far behind the way ax would, ASX drawing basically dead against you. And it may even make better decisions than you if they have position and on later streets. Draws in general, maybe, I mean, maybe this exact case is a bit of an exception, but in general, draws are not good value targets because, uh, especially if you're out of position, they very well may outplay you. Even if you're an equity favorite, you're not necessarily an EV favorite when you're heads up out of position against the draw because they're going to make better decisions than you on the river. They know whether or not they got there and you're the one playing the guessing game. Exactly. So our hero bets $25 and only the low jack calls. So managed to get it heads up. We're going to the turn now with $156 in the pot. Our hero holding nine five of clubs and the turn is a five of of diamonds. So the board is ace of clubs, queen of clubs, seven of clubs, five of diamonds. About as blank as you could get. Now our hero bets 45 into 156. And again, our effective stack was around 600 to start. So it's still like 550. This strikes me as a little small. Would you agree with that?
2: I do. At this point, we most likely have the best hand. We have a decent target. And so I would just bet the biggest size I think my target would call. If this guy's sitting here with something like ace 10, I don't think he's folding for, I mean half pot at the minimum. Um, You might be able to go a little bit um, bigger in more passive games, but I definitely would not go less than half versus this player with that target.
1: Yeah, that sounds right to me. And it's worth pointing out, you know, half pot Followed by like half pot on the river is not going to get stacks in. And I think that may be the best you can do, but this does kind of get back to why this is not a great hand. It's like even when you right. get the best flop you could possibly ask for and you flop the flush, you still can't really put stacks in and feel good about it. Like you're still kind of restricted to, well, I have to target fairly weak hands. So it's just like you, you, you flop Yahtzee as, as <laughs> our correspondent puts it, <laughs> and you can't really go for Yahtzee. Like you, you can't get the uh, the hundred point bonus.
2: This is always the problem with small flush cards Yeah, is because when you make a flush, everybody knows that the flush is out there <laughs> and they're all looking for that third flush card. And now all three of them came on the flop. And if you start putting a lot of money in this pot, they're only going to want to continue if they have you beat. And so weak flushes just don't have great implied odds where, stronger flushes do like you know I'm not saying don't you know try to make flushes but you, you want especially from early position bigger flushes so that you can get value from uh, weaker flushes but when you have a weak flush and you're trying to get some value from something even weaker than that it's very difficult and that's probably why he went small here but I do think he might have gone a little bit too far with it uh, I think you can get a you you got to be able to get something uh a decent size pot out of this hand just to kind of like mitigate the mistake of opening it in the first place but you're not going to be able to get stacks in so like you say andrew like half pot is probably about the best we can do but we at least want to go that much
1: uh well for better for worse the villain helps out here (laughs) because the hero bets 45 and the low jack raises to 110. matthew says this was somewhat unexpected so i really had to think about it for a minute which that right there i love yes Anytime something unexpected or surprising happens what that means is there's a lot of information contained there because you didn't expect it there's probably something like pretty specific and weird is happening so you need to completely reevaluate what you thought you what you thought your hand was worth. And I mean, this is the classic example of that is like a player who has been passive, suddenly getting aggressive. We were previously thinking like, oh, this is a great hand. How much money can we get into the pot? Now the villain is raising. And my thought anyway is like,
2: uh oh yeah. <laughs> like,
1: this sounds like this feels like a bigger flush.
2: My thought is if this player's been passive, I'm folding. And so, so when you said the guy's helping us out, my first thought was not really. Well, no, yeah, I was, was tucking chick there, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's helping us uh, realize that you know we don't have the best hand. And this is the other thought that went through my mind when he said "bad play rewarded on the flop." I was like, eh, not so quickly, because this could easily <laughs> go wrong, uh, good or bad. Because, like you know, another thing that could be happening here is, and I think uh, Matthew mentions this: this player could be raising with the king of clubs. And so it's not that they don't have any bluffs in their range. It's just that they don't bluff often enough. And that alone is enough to put our hand, our bluff catchers into a tough spot. And our hand is a bluff catcher at this point. So if this opponent is a passive player who I don't think will raise very uh, many um, uh, weaker value hands here, and the only bluff I can give them is like the king of clubs, probably folding.
1: Yeah. And and here's a good, uh, to that point, Matthew has some comments. Um, He says, I took sets out of the villain's range pretty quickly. It would really only be sevens and fives, the latter of which I block, and I wouldn't expect those to raise on this board. I think that leaves only flushes as the value hands and probably just the bear king of clubs as bluffs. My flush is actually stronger than expected. There are only three bigger clubs than mine available since the ace and the queen are on the board. So I thought the villain actually had more combos of the lower suited connectors uh, that I could beat than I would normally expect.
2: That's a very good point. And I did speak too soon. Um, had I paid more attention to the fact that the ace and the queen are out there, then it's going to put me <laughs> – actually, it just puts me in a tougher spot. Because without that, let's say if this was like uh, – so like an eight-high board with all clubs, I think I have an easier fold, um when I bet and get raised by a passive player because now there's way more available – flushes to put in their range. So even though I'm losing the pot, my decision is easier in that spot. So now that Matthew has brought to my attention that the big clubs are out there, I don't have an easy decision now, (laughs) but it's still like, I still don't feel good about it. Now I'm just confused as to what to do. Now it might become like an easy fold for me into like a hero fold, depending on my read on this player.
1: I think Matthew is also overstating this point by a good deal. So you know, you can't count flushes by just counting one card. There are more combos of king X of clubs than there are eight X of clubs by a lot. True. Uh, so, you know, having, like, I, I think if you just said his range is every, he plays, this opponent is going to play literally every suited hand free flop and they'll always raise if they have a flush here. Uh, I don't think you're ahead of that. Range. Uh, I don't know that it's a fold. Like maybe you're getting the pot odds to, to call because like there are enough lower ones in there. But I mean, there are many more combos of King X of Clubs, Jack X of Clubs, 10X of Clubs. There are not very many 8X of clubs combos. There are uh the five of clubs is in your hand. So there are two combos of four X of Clubs there's one there's one way to make a three high flush like the, these little those little flushes right. do not add up quickly and to right. the extent that the villain is folding anything it's probably those lowest ones so i think that you know and this is part of the problem with making a 9 high flush even when there's two bigger than on your board uh two bigger clubs than than your high card on the board it's still pretty hard for the villain to have a lower flush like you're not on the right side of the flush versus flush confrontation very often
2: yeah i think what's happened here because the big clubs are out there the number of combos in his range has decreased, but the percentage of that range that is a better flush is still pretty high.
1: That's right. So Matthew says, I thought that uh, there were more lower suited connectors I could beat, um, so I landed on a call. And so I, mean, I do think calling is you know, either folding or calling is the right play. I, I definitely would not raise here. Right. But yeah, I think the the, the reasoning for it is uh, a little off there. The river brings us the seven of diamonds. There's now three hundred and seventy-six dollars in the pot. The final board is ace of clubs, queen of clubs, seven of clubs, five of diamonds, seven of diamonds. Our hero has nine five of clubs. Uh, the board has paired, although given that we didn't think the villain was going to have uh, sets or two pairs for raising the turn, that's not super relevant. Although it is a little bit relevant in that. Your prospects for getting paid by lower flushes have gotten worse because there's a new thing for them to be afraid of. Like, even if you're pretty confident the villain doesn't have a full house, they have to worry that you might have a full house, right? This is probably how you would play like a set or quads um, if, if you got here. So, I think that your prospects for putting money in have gotten even worse with the board pairing. And even if you did, you know, call the, the flop, I would be leaning towards check folding the river. Sorry, call the turn. I would be leaning towards check folding the river. Agreed. Uh, our hero checks Lojack bets 150 into 376 uh matthew does call again and says nothing has really changed from my turn analysis other than seven seven is now even less likely i'm getting an even better price um you're definitely not getting a better price the previous phrase was quite small um right he says, yeah. I did. I ran back through the options. My mind was unchanged, so I called. Uh, amazingly, the villain did manage to have a lower flush. He had eight <laughs> four of <them. laughs> So Matthew did pull this one out. But yeah, I, I think there was more luck here than just just flopping the flush. I think managing to run into a lower flush than yours is incredibly lucky when you have a nine high flush. Yeah, just fold brief up.
2: Yeah, the river is a better spot for Matthew's comment. Bad play rewarded. Yes. Yeah, because like – and the other thing he said is he thinks the preflop open was likely his worst decision in the hand. I would venture to say probably the river call. I'm, I'm trying to decide between the river call and the turn call. I mean, he was getting a very good price on the turn. To me, it's a toss-up between the river call and the, and the preflop open as the worst decisions in the hand.
1: Yeah. I mean, in terms of magnitude, the river mistakes are always going to be more expensive because it's it's bigger pot. But I think the, the pre flop is kind of what it's just you're setting out with the wrong tools, you know, and then everything else is kind of like you found yourself in a spot where you need to do a certain job. It's like, I don't know, you're trying to build a house without a hammer. Right? like there's exactly. a job you're trying to do and you're just like oh, i've got a screwdriver i guess i'll try to like bang on this nail. and it's like well yeah you didn't do a good job hammering the nail with a screwdriver but like the problem isn't that you're bad at hammering <laughs> nails with screwdrivers the problem is you just shouldn't have brought a screwdriver
2: exactly exactly
1: uh, thank you matthew for writing Thank you, everyone. We appreciate you all listening. And if you are inclined to support us at patreon.com slash daily, we would certainly appreciate that as well. And please enjoy this interview with Stephen Flavel, aka Jorbs. Stephen Flavel, aka Jorbs, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, so this is—I'm—I I, got increasingly excited about this the more that I, uh, you know, sort of was looking over your your Twitter feed. And yeah, I watched a little bit of your stuff on YouTube and I saw the book that you wrote. Uh, So this was a recommendation from one of our listeners. Uh, And so someone I trust and we we invited you just on that basis. But then the more that I looked into you, I was like, oh yeah, Steven's going to be a great guest. So yeah, welcome. Thank you.
3: Thanks so much for having me. I find that strategy gamers tend to have a lot in common. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure we'll have tons to talk about. Yeah.
1: And is that how you think of yourself primarily as a a strategy gamer?
3: I would say that I am actually a storyteller and an entertainer. That is what functionally I do for my career. I do that through the vehicle of strategy gaming. So I tell stories about strategy games. I play strategy games uh, as a show, so on and so forth. But primarily what I'm doing is creating a community around a shared source of values and ideas, which we all participate in on our Discord server and the Twitch channel and the YouTube channel. So yeah, I'm a I'm an online content creator, community builder and storyteller via strategy games.
1: And at the most literal level, the form that that takes is you are um, streaming and then I guess also creating like YouTube uh, content or content for other platforms around, is it, I mean, Slave Aspire is, is your primary focus, but you're doing other games as well?
3: Yeah, last year, my goal was actually to play 300 different games on stream. And wow, Wow. I don't set goals with an intention that I will succeed at them. I set them as a direction. So I got up to 100. That was okay. Uh, That was way more than I would have had without that goal. Um, That was really fun. This year, I'm actually focused more on playing more Slay the Spire. Having taken some time to enjoy the other sorts of games all around me, I want to refocus on this one game that I love more than any other game I've ever played. So.
1: So I mean, for people who don't know, how would you introduce like what Slay the Spire is and what is it about it that you know causes you to love it so much?
3: Uh I've been a card gamer since well, Magic the Gathering was maybe when I was 13. I got really into Magic the Gathering, but even before then.
1: How old are you now, if you don't mind saying?
3: Uh 36. Even before then, I you know played Hearts on Yahoo is one of my earliest <laughs> gaming memories, actually. <laughs> and something that always frustrated me about card games was that there were very few truly complex single player card game experiences in the world. Chandelar for Magic the Gathering is this wild game from the early 90s where there's this huge, fairly open world and you walk around it and build a magic deck and fight dungeons and stuff. It is mind blowing how um, large that game is and well done it is for an early 90s game. And honestly, other than that, looking for a game like it in the year 2010, I was struggling to find something better and Slay the Spire came out and it was basically exactly what I had been dreaming of. It was a one to two hour long single player complex strategy gaming card game. Since it came out, Spire like is now a thing and they're all, hundreds and hundreds of games that are like Spire, that take cards and build you an hour or two long experience that you play through. But say the Spire was really the first one. And in a lot of ways, the reason that it went viral and so many other devs tried to replicate its success was that it was so good. And so I'm still playing it and enjoying it today. It, it's really that I like card games. I didn't really like having to compete with other people or wait on other people's schedule and things like that in order to play card games. And so when a single-player game came along, I was very excited about it.
1: Do you think of Slay the Spire as, as primarily a card game? Because, it, I mean, it does have other elements, right? Like the, a card game wouldn't have to be roguelike. It wouldn't have to include the you know, choosing paths and having... I mean, there's other elements. There's the potions. There's the... I mean, it's kind of a mashup of a lot of different features, right?
3: Yeah, and that's a really good point. I would say that the... <laughs> the mechanism via which I interact with the strategy of the game is largely thinking about the order of my deck, the cards that I have in hand, how they interact with the stuff that's going on around me. But you're right that the stuff going around you isn't like a symmetrical opponent who also has a hand of cards, like in poker, it might be. I guess even in poker, you know, you have the chips for betting and so on and so forth. So there are other elements other than the cards. Um, But in Slay the Spire, it's very much that the, the stuff around you is not cards. It is There's a narrative going on, there's world built for you, there are all sorts of different enemies with different sorts of attacks who apply different statuses to you, and so there's a tremendous amount of mechanical knowledge that you can gain from playing Slave Aspire and incorporate and master, and during all of this you're really interacting with it through your deck and your cards and building the right 30-card monstrosity to kill everything in one turn or whatever.
1: And this is somewhat different. Like I imagine more people listening to this would be familiar with something like Magic where you build a deck in advance and then you play with that deck. And what's happening in Slay the Spire is you're building the deck as you go along. And so a lot of the decisions that you're making are not just about you know how do you play the cards that you have in your deck, but about what risks are you going to take to acquire, to try to acquire certain cards, uh, upgrade certain cards, things like that.
3: Yeah, it's kind of like if you did a Magic the Gathering draft, but after every five picks for your deck, you had to play a game. And so you're constantly being challenged and asked, did you build a deck that works so far? And the challenges that you're presented change as you go along. One part of the game being asymmetrical is that at the start of the game, you'll fight against something with 10 hit points, and at the end, you'll fight against something with 800. And Sometimes you're fighting five enemies at once. Sometimes you're fighting one large enemy. Sometimes you're fighting an enemy which is, like, fragile but very dangerous and attacks you very quickly. Yeah, there's a tremendously rich deck-building environment in there because of all the different challenges which you face at different times.
1: And I guess the the original conception of Magic the Gathering was a little bit more like that sort of like the, the game that richard garfield first built without knowing how big magic was going to get where you know, the intention was that it was going to be played with an ante where you would like each each player would flip over a card from their deck and then like whoever won the game would, would get that card i think there wasn't the idea that every player you know that people playing it seriously would own every card uh, and sort of build the perfect deck that that they wanted so I, I wonder if maybe the original conception of magic wasn't a little bit more in line with what slate aspire is doing
3: very possible very possible i remember playing for auntie in middle school such a long time ago Uh, yeah
1: it's funny to think there were probably like 12 year olds entering Anteing these cards that are now worth like a thousand dollars
3: yeah yeah and it kind of is um wagering and gambling aimed at 12 year olds
1: which isn't a great look (laughs) yeah my my dad didn't love me playing like or the relationship that i had with acquiring cards in that game (laughs) Um, I wasn't going to ask this so soon, but since you mentioned it, what is the narrative of Slay the Spire? Like I've played several dozen hours of it and I mean, I I enjoy the game on on a strategy level. I think it's quite interesting, but like, I don't understand who my character is supposed to be or like what a Spire is or why I care about slaying it.
3: Yeah. And there's nothing explicitly stated. You are allowed to kind of grow into it as a player, as you see fit and as you pick up different bits and pieces. I've talked with Casey about it. Casey is one of the two founders of Megacrit who made the game, and he did most of the writing for the game's events. And he said that what he was primarily focused on was he wanted some sort of feeling to hit you as you were playing through that part of the spire. And he just did some sort of creative writing trying to evoke that feeling. And then that's basically what shipped (laughs) Um, after a little bit of editing and making the text move around on the screen and so on and so forth. So there's no exact specific deliberate narrative, but you start to pick up that there are recurring elements throughout the spire. It's about ascending, going upwards. And so there's some sort of divinity related to birds who can fly, which kind of makes sense. Um, There's this weird thing going on with a whale at the base of the spire who keeps on resurrecting you. So there's some sorts of things going on with memories of past lives i'm not going to try to spoil anything or claim to know everything <laughs> but it's a really fascinating world to live in for a while
1: now, I, I like that take on it because i i think my my naive thinking on it was just that it was sort of sloppy in that way <laughs> um and i think i was given that it, it in no other way is that game sloppy that seems like a pretty silly assumption for me to make
3: yeah i i do think that The goal wasn't to have a polished narrative. The goal was to make you feel a certain way as you played. That's what the narrative ends up doing insofar as the narrative exists.
1: Uh, So you were once upon a time a professional poker player?
3: Yes. 2008 to 2011, I I dropped out of college. I was one of those college kids.
1: And did you discover it in sort of the, the same way as those college kids, which is to say either from like sitting on an ESPN or just kind of having friends who are like, hey, I'm making a lot of money doing this.
3: Yes, for me, it was actually during a study abroad quarter in Rome. And the University of Washington here in Seattle is where I went to college and I was studying classics. So I was very intently interested in studying ancient Rome. And we were doing walking tours of the city and talking about this used to be a temple, you know, and now it is an apartment building or whatever. And the University of Washington sent over a professor and two graduate students to teach classes for, I think, 12 uh, undergraduate students. And I was one of the undergrads. And one of the graduate students had played poker to get herself through undergrad and wow. together a poker night for us once a week and told me that I'd be good at it. And I was interested in the game and installed poker stars. And they used to have. Free roll tournaments, which would get about six thousand entrants and pay out five bucks for a top eight, I believe. <laughs> I believe it was top eight because it was I remember it being strange, like it would cut to the final table, but like one person wouldn't get anything,
1: I think. <laughs> um they just couldn't spare another five dollars.
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh but anyway, I like got five bucks out of one of those on my third or fourth attempt, I want to say, and entered. buy-in tables, which was high stakes for me. You want to talk about bankroll management. (laughs) $2 buy-in tables, not $2 big blind tables, to be clear. (laughs) Right. And eventually built that up to, uh, I think I made $60,000 my first year playing and progressed up through the mid stakes and was playing $1,000 buy-in, no limit cash when Black Friday happened in 2011, which for me was the end of my career.
2: So you were one of these guys that never deposited real money. You just worked your way up through free rolls. I was.
3: I deposited for bonuses um, a couple of times, but it was like deposit 200 bucks and we'll match kind of things. It was just free money. Uh, it wasn't for the purposes of bankroll. That's awesome.
1: You were strictly playing cash?
3: I played pretty much only cash, yeah. Occasionally they would have free roll tournaments for people with lots of VPPs and Mm -hmm. I would enter those and like do okay. I was frustrated. I was so frustrated by tournament strategy. It really irritated me that people would fold when you shoved on their big blind because (laughs) of ICM. I just really wanted to make an account that was like, I didn't study ICM. Don't light shove my big blind or something like that (laughs) as a screen name and and just call really light. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I prefer playing cash.
1: (laughs) I was thinking MTT is a little bit more like Slay the Spire than a cash game is, right? Where it is the the decisions that you're making are discrete, but they are they have implications for one another, right? That the things that you do early in the tournament give you the resources that you will use later in the tournament. Yeah,
3: and there is a lot of richness in tournament poker, which doesn't exist in cash poker because of the different values of the chips at different stages in the tournament. I could have been a tournament. I could have gotten into that too. I happened to get into cash, but I definitely could have found that interesting as well.
1: Not that you needed to be great to to win money in that era, but you know what was your um how how did you go about getting good at poker?
3: I read some stuff on two plus two and I I read all the I read super system and you know I got the books. Then I just kind of started talking with I guess you'd call it a study group nowadays, but back in the day was more like a a group of guys who run an online forum or some people who I happen to have usernames for on Skype. I would just start talking to people more and more about different hands going over stuff. I spent probably half of my time away from the tables either talking with people or studying the hands that I had played. I'm big on data. When I was in Classics, one of the things I was doing was studying the actual words that were in pre-aural epic stories so i like had a database of all of the words in the iliad and i was trying to understand the grammatical constructions of language that existed before we started writing words down and so like databases for me like yeah okay install hold the manager start playing around with it a ton I think a ton of my edge was finding analytical tools for the game, which the other people playing high volume cash weren't using yet. Like I made a lot of money from a program which told me how long it had taken someone to take an action. Mm -hmm. Um, People were not balanced in that aspect of their play. And yeah, over time, I just sort of accumulated more and more and more knowledge, went up the stakes. In 2011, I paid a guy $6,000 for like, I think six hours of coaching or something like that and most of what i got out of the coaching was him telling me that i was already really good and should just be playing higher so
1: that might have been worth six thousand dollars
3: yeah if black friday hadn't happened um (laughs) it probably would have been yeah
1: so that was just the end for you you weren't gonna like relocate to uh canada or something to keep playing online
3: yeah um i had family tragedy sort of month that April, I had my career go under, essentially. And then my girlfriend's mother was diagnosed with cancer. And oh, wow. we were in LA, and I had money saved from poker. And this seemed way more important than playing poker. So I committed to sticking around there for a while. And then by the time I had the chance to like stick my head up and think, do I want to play some more poker, the the buzz had gone for me. I just sort of relaxed into the rest of my life and thought, hmm, there could be other things I could do for a career. Maybe it's time to look for those. And that's how I eventually wandered over to streaming. What year was this? I think I was in LA for a year and a half, and then I moved back to Seattle and spent a couple of years sort of investigating different things, went back to school volunteered with a game company and I would have started streaming pretty much full-time in about 2016 when the game that I had volunteered on came out that was like the start of my content creation as a career phase of my life because I'd worked really hard on this game called Long War 2 which was a mod for XCOM 2 and a lot of people were interested in how to play it and I was the guy who had just spent six months uh, balance testing the hardest difficulty (laughs) so I had a lot of things to say
2: Yeah, so this would have been um, just a couple of years after Black Friday, and that was kind of a dark time where people really didn't know what was going to happen with poker. So I can imagine that was like not a good time to, like if you were trying to decide whether you would get back in poker or not, that would be a worse time to decide that as opposed to something like, you know, five to 10 years after that point when poker had pretty much come back. I wouldn't say full force, but at least it was like viable again. Like there were there was a time in like 2012, 2013 where I wasn't even aware of these um unregulated sites that that started to pop up. And once I became aware of those, I kind of like dipped my toe back in, but you know, I wasn't playing for a living at that time. And so it was easier for someone like me to just like, ah, oh, let's just see what this is. Where if I was playing for a living and everything was kind of like a gray area, uh, maybe I would just, maybe I would have found something else as well.
3: Yeah. And having just gone through Black Friday, um, Poker Stars was sending me my paychecks, like addressed from a gardening company or something mm. for the <laughs> for the last six months before Black Friday happened. Like I was kind of like, uh, if it <laughs> seems shady, I'm just going to just gonna do something else, I think.
1: Wow, wow was back then. Yeah. So you decided to go into the upsta- upstanding world of online content creation.
3: Well, <laughs> yes. I decided that I liked teaching people. One thing that I learned from my poker playing days was the 50% or so of my time that I spent on the tables, I just felt like I was sending it into a black hole and getting some money out. Mm-hmm. I wasn't enjoying it a tremendous amount. If anything, I was like studying ways to deal with the negative emotions that I was getting from that rather than really treasuring it as a time in my life that I was enjoying spending that way. Mm -hmm. And so I just realized as a poker player, I had started offering coaching. I had started making instructive video content. I had started trying to group people together to talk about poker strategy and... That was what I was actually enjoying about playing poker, and I realized there were other ways for me to do that. Who were you making videos for? Uh, at the time, I was just uploading videos to YouTube of wow. me playing. I did a series where I like started at $0. $0.01, cent, $0.02 cent, and built up to, I think, $2, $4 blinds. There there was a lot of strange conversation about, is it okay to share your strategies with other people mm-hmm. in poker communities back in 2008 which I don't <laughs> think I don't think those conversations still exist nowadays like Phil Gelfond and jungle man are just talking through exactly why they're doing everything in a heads up PLO match you know it's and it's free on YouTube so it was a different world though back in 2008.
2: yeah you're reminding me of a lot of those sort of things like I can remember at least me personally, one of the first people I saw stra- sharing strategy advice on a on a large basis was my friend Alex Fitzgerald assassinato. and he would talk about like some of the uh, I don't know if they rose to the level of death threats, <laughs> but some of the uh, negative reaction he got from people, other pros, uh, for sharing uh, strat- strategy information. So that that's something I forgot about. It's it's so foreign now because like it's everywhere at this point but you're right at that time it wasn't as prevalent as it is today Mm
3: -hmm. now that i'm thinking about it i did make like my own website where you could pay something like five bucks for credits to pay for some videos using some sort of third-party web hosting thing you know i don't know if you know greg shahade these curtains and online yes. poker. But... Yeah, we've
1: had his sister, uh, Jen, on the show before.
3: Oh, she's great. Awesome. She has had me on her podcast. Oh, nice. Strategy gamers all know each other.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> um, he used to have, do a thing like that with chess, where he had some forum where he'd post chess videos and you could buy credits and then pay the credits for one video at a time. And I just really liked his chess videos, so I tried to do that with poker videos as well. So that's where my inspiration for that had come from.
1: So what was the... um? to to get to the point where you felt like you could do online content creation as a career, right? I mean, I think a lot of people have the idea that they would like to do that, but how did you get to the point where that seemed feasible?
3: Honestly, and maybe this was wrong and, and I just got lucky, but honestly, I looked at what it was in 2012, 2013 and thought I can do that. And then I did it. <laughs> there were other things that I thought I might enjoy more. Um, and I still wonder that from day to day, like, would I be happier as a data scientist? I would make a good paycheck that was less reliant on things completely out of my control and fewer people would yell at me. But you know, what I ended up in was online content creation. I just knew that I like explaining strategy games to people and looking around the world at how people who liked explaining strategy games to people were making money. Online content creation was kind of it. And I looked at the people who were making content for those strategy games, and I knew that I could do what they were doing. I sat down with a guy who did a lot of productivity coaching and talked through like what an ideal day of content creation would be like for me, how I would structure everything. I had little lists for starting stream and ending stream and goals that I was setting for myself month over month, and I crushed it. I did better than I wanted to. And it got to a point where after two or three years, I actually started trying to work out how to do worse as a content creator because I was making significantly more money than I needed. And as a content creator, there is a cost to that. There's a lot of focus on you. I have been doxed a couple of times. I have people you know, sending hate my way. And I wanted to make sure that I was spending my energy to build a happy community full of people who would bring me joy in my life rather than spending a lot of my energy building a large community full of people who would bring me money in my life. So eventually I like flipped gears a little bit and changed my goal in content creation toward that. But I just kind of thought I could do it and did it, which is not good advice. If you are (laughs) an aspiring content creator That not how it works for most people and in the book that i published last year i talk a decent amount about people who have tried to make it in content creation and have failed and it is a terrible career to be halfway into because if you're in a situation where you are struggling to pay rent with this thing you are also in a situation where your paycheck depends on you catering to the entitlement of a lot of viewers who are doing things like dehumanizing you or fetishizing you or pushing past your boundaries. Um, And then if you try to enforce who you are, uh, again, they might leave and stop paying you. It's nasty. It is a weird space to navigate.
1: Do you think that's something that's uh, intrinsic to the career as opposed to something about you um, or the the way that you presented material that was like controversial or um, anything like that?
3: Oh, I think I was incredibly lucky to get as little of it as I did. Uh, I'm not a woman, which helps a tremendous amount. Mm-hmm. I am the sort of guy who looks like he would be good at strategy games. I'm like a, a balding, older white guy, which is tremendously favorable uh, for me as a strategy gamer content creator. Yeah.
1: Why is that? Like, I mean, is, is that just like the nature of of the beast? Like, why why is that something that's intrinsic to content creation, you're just, you're inevitably going to attract people who have a weird relationship to you. The
3: way that I think of it is not that people are awful or anything like that. Most people are extremely kind. I think that I have, um, let's see, a hundred and 111,000 followers on Twitch right now. One or two of those people at least are awful. Um, (laughs) that's just a lot of people. Right. And the tricky thing with uh, content creation when you have that many people is any time that you have a negative interaction with someone, there's a possibility that it escalates, and it may not be a very high possibility. And going through your normal life, you might never see one of those interactions escalate very far at all. But when you're having thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of interactions with people, and you have one negative interaction with someone, it probably goes away, but then you have another and another and another. And by the time you're at thousands of negative interactions with people, a lot of which you don't even like know you're having, Like a lot of the time, it's just they watch your channel, decide they don't like it, and if things go well, they leave. But sometimes they kind of get lost on the way to the red X at the top of their browser window, <laughs> And they'll like type some offensive comment in your chat and then they'll get timed out by your moderators and they'll get mad that they got timed out by your moderators and start sending messages to your moderators yelling at them and then the timeout expires and they send something like extremely offensive in the chat again and get banned but then they go to your social media and start dming you or tagging you in public tweets saying that you're a fascist and then they find your discord and then they look up your name and find as much personal information as they can about you and they put it on a subreddit like This can happen. Most of the time, the vast, 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 vast majority of the time you interact with another human being, that doesn't happen. But it's just a matter of scale. It's so many interactions with other human beings. Sometimes it does.
2: You you remind me of a time when I did a little bit of Twitch streaming, Um, maybe had like a couple of thousand um, followers, not a really big scale. And I know exactly what you mean because it's it's so funny that I would occasionally, even with the small following that I had, I would occasionally get people come in making racist comments, and so I'm a black guy, in case you did not know that, and in that like didn't really bother me. I would uh, I found myself oftentimes just kind of like either talking to them or either ignoring them or talking to them and they like quickly apologize. So I don't know what it was that makes people, they kind of want to like troll or something. And when that doesn't work, they're kind of like embarrassed or whatnot whatever. But <laughs> I don't know if you had this experience, like with all the racist comments I got, like that would just, you know, not bother me at all. I either ignored it or kind of like, you know, neutralized it. But then I'll have one guy that would come in every day and ask me if I pooped yet. And that drove me crazy. (laughs) And I can imagine how much, you know, once you get to like 100,000 followers, how many more like ridiculous comments and questions like that you have to deal with. And I laugh every time I think about it. Like the racist stuff didn't bother me. But this one guy was super concerned about my bowel habits. That drove me insane.
3: (laughs) Yeah, people, people will sometimes work out how to push your buttons. And the people who come in assuming that your buttons are a certain thing, I have found personally, they look at me, they think, oh, I can irritate this guy by saying this thing, but I'm used to that because they're like person number 3,262 or something who has thought that like, yeah, okay, already been here. But yeah, the people who get a little more personal or unique about the way that they're trolling can be a bit tougher to deal with. It's also really weird when they donate you lots of money while they do it, Um, (laughs) which is something that happened to me one time, and I eventually had to ban a guy who had donated me like $10,000 in the last three months, which I was in a financial situation where I could do that, but it gave me a lot of appreciation for friends who might have to just keep putting up with someone like that, like really put me in a situation where I could understand what that meant. This is a person who would be overtly sexual toward me in like public chat and then was also DMing me while I wasn't streaming sexual events and stuff like that. And at some point I was just like, well, the money is great, but I've told you not to do this a lot of times and you have to go now. Sorry, friend.
1: This is starting to, to feel familiar from, um, Live poker, I've I've thought about this, especially sometimes playing in. I, I've sometimes had the experience of of being kind of like a a, a big fish in a small pond. You know, playing in markets where there were not like in, you know in L.A. Uh, there's tons of big games, and um, I'm not saying they're all created equal, but like in smaller markets, there might be you know, only one large live game, and that game can easily be built around one or two people. And at some point, you do kind of start to wonder like what exactly are these people paying me for? Because they are paying you, right? Like if if they're losing players and they know they're losing players and they're losing at a pretty good clip for you to be like making a living largely from them, they are kind of your customers and they are paying you for something. And it's not just to play poker against you. Like- I mean, I've never had anything as weird as as what you guys are describing, but you know, there are people who are kind of trying to get you to do things either because it, they know it makes you uncomfortable or just because it's it's what they want. You know, trying to get you to laugh at certain kinds of jokes or just to laugh at whatever whatever they say or to to drink with them or to do drugs with them or um, they're they're kind of paying for something other than the service that is what you thought you were offering when you hung hung out your placard.
3: That's really fascinating to me. I'd never thought about it from that angle. As an online cash player, um, pretty much exclusively, I did think about how I was providing some sort of service to people who were losing money on those tables. Like, And I felt like it was my responsibility to not be timing out on every decision and stuff like that, because presumably they are here to play poker with me, not wait for my time bank to run down. Um, For example, I also had Jessica Alba as my profile picture because I found that people would hit on me and want to keep playing on my tables if I did that. Um, (laughs) So that probably made me a few thousand dollars here and there. I don't know. So i would thought about it from the angle of like, I am being someone to play poker with for another person. But when you phrase it that way, to me, you're kind of describing someone for whom this amount of money is basically irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And they are able to create a situation where they have a few other people in a room with him who are kind of like beholden to them. Like you're going to keep playing poker with this person because you're there to make money for a career and they are going to lose the money to you, which lets them probably do all sorts of stuff with you. <laughs> I'd never thought about that. Wow.
1: Uh, in, in, in thinking about it just now, you, you've nailed it and i've i've largely avoided those situations but the sense i have is that you know other people go you know further down various rabbit holes as a result of those interactions
3: i'm kind of afraid to ask this question but i immediately wonder how weird that gets for women who play private games because it feels like it would get just mm. beyond weird
1: uh, i mean women we've we've interviewed on this show have you know, definitely mentioned getting like propositioned, and that's probably not too shocking to you. I don't know that anyone has shared with us, you know, those especially horrifying experiences. But I think if you imagine that it might have happened to a woman, it probably has.
3: Yeah, it is a reminder of our privileges men. Gosh. Yeah. Wild world out there. Something that I find increasingly when people feel entitled to me in some way which happens when I'm a content creator. like They see that I'm putting on a show and they want the show to be for them. And so they'll ask me to do the thing that they want. And then sometimes if I say no, it's like, oh, that's reasonable. You're you're not actually just a person for my entertainment. You're doing your own life. Um, but sometimes I'll say no, and they'll actually express frustration that I'm saying no and try to double down. Like, no, you really should do this thing, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'll get called arrogant. And... I found more and more that the interplay between entitlement and boundaries and arrogance is fascinating to me in the world that I live in because people will express entitlement to me and I'll establish a boundary and then I'll get told that I'm arrogant. I don't know. It was was kind of a throwaway thought, but it's something that I think about in these situations where we're talking about people who are trying to pay for a certain behavior from you and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, which I guess is not even exactly what OnlyFans is, but I think OnlyFans is closer to that. But I think either, there's not maybe as bright of a line between OnlyFans and like a lot of other online content creation spaces as you might initially think.
3: Oh yeah, I there there's a very what's the word porous? There's a very porous boundary between the type of content creation I do and the content creation that happens on OnlyFans. I have a lot of friends who are on OnlyFans either they started as content creators and then went to only fans or they were on only fans to begin with and we just connected because our careers have a lot in common the way that we interact with managers is very similar the way that we talk about setting boundaries and um trying to make sure that we are safe and make sure that we are caring about ourselves first is very similar there's a tremendous amount of similarity there
1: so when you mentioned um trying to Decrease the amount of this that you were encountering through kind of cultivating your community and making yourself less successful was the way that you put it uh what exactly did that look like like what what steps did you have to take to do that
3: okay so my favorite one is that when i am at work there is almost no number on my screen anywhere Five years ago, when I was at work, I could see how many viewers do I have right now? How many followers have I gained this session? How many subscribers do I have? After the session, I would go look to see how much ad revenue i gotten. I'd upload a YouTube video and see how many views the YouTube video had gotten. Not just over the course of the last two days, but also look at the curve to see how it compared to my previous YouTube videos. I would look at how many comments my YouTube video had gotten. I would go to Reddit and I would post a post and see how many upvotes my Reddit post got etc. I have almost zero numbers uh, that I look at anymore at my job. And something that I realized was that I was making decisions in my job because of those numbers. I was trying to choose the thing that would make those numbers go up. But for starters, the numbers did not imply success financially. (laughs) There's a correlation, but there's not a, a clear causal certain um, relationship between those numbers being higher and me making more money. As I talked to other content creators, I realized there were people with far smaller audiences than mine who were making more money than me, and there were people with far larger audiences than mine who were making less money than me. There were a lot of revenue sources that you could explore if you focused on like actual ways to make money, and how good people were using those or not using them was more of a driver of how much money they made than YouTube view number or whatever. It's like a It's a stat that gets thrust in front of you, which you shouldn't care that much about. I imagine there's a lot of similarities in poker with people looking at stats of how people play and trying to assign too much to them. Uh, The other thing I realized is it wasn't making me happy, which is actually what my goal was. My actual goal was to be happy, not to make as much money as I could. And so, yeah, nowadays I try to make the content that I actually enjoy making. And that by itself um, caused a huge shift in how I interacted with my audience. My audience was there to see what I enjoyed doing. Once I started making content, it was what I wanted to do, which, you know, that smooths out a lot of friction to begin with when people are in your audience because they actually like you and have similar interests to you.
1: The poker analogy that I thought of immediately was... um... I mean, there's probably programs like this that still exist, but there used to be one that prevented you from being able to check your balance uh, while you were playing. So you couldn't mm-hmm. see like whether you were uh, up or, or down, which is, you know, certainly I'm sure you're aware is a driver of a lot of like tilt and other bad play for people.
3: I believe I both had that enabled on my computer and I had a different thing, which was tracking whether my opponents were up or down for me. So I couldn't see whether I was up or down, but I could see if my opponents were up or down. Which is kind of funny. That's smart.
1: Oh, that's interesting. How does the storytelling fit into all this? Like, What what are the stories that you see yourself uh, telling?
3: So I published a book before we go live last year, and that was the story of my time in an online content creator team. There were kind of 60 of us who were brought together by a management group to... uh, basically do collective bargaining for sponsorships and the like. And then things got weird and abusive and investment capital got involved. And after I left the team, having not been paid for the last three months of work, I talked to my manager about it, who I had met through the team. And I told her, you know, I really thought these guys were good guys. I understand that things didn't work out, but I I didn't think they would do something like not paying me for three months. Uh, And she told me, oh, they were not good guys. (laughs) They they were being polite to you, but let me tell you some of the stories I have. And that was really eye-opening to me. I'm front-facing in the content creation industry. I talk directly to an audience and I have to be very transparent because I'm on camera by a microphone for maybe eight hours a day. The things that i say are going to be recorded and remembered and criticized and poured over but my manager whose name is hannah she was on the back end of the content creation industry nobody really in my audience knew that she existed and she had been like being treated horrendously uh, in awful sexist and manipulative exploitative ways um by her bosses at this team that I was working for for three years and I just hadn't even known despite being one of the people closest to her in the space and so I ended up interviewing a few dozen other content creators and people who worked on the back end of the content creation industry and tried to kind of tell the story of how we come to manipulate and abuse each other in the strategy gaming space and why we don't realize it's happening necessarily what you have to be looking out for to try to build a space where people support each other and don't allow that behavior to happen.
1: In your day-to-day work when you're streaming, uh, whether it's Slay the Spire or, or whatever game you're playing at that time, what are the stories that you're telling then?
3: It depends on my energy. In a kind of balanced, neutral state, I'll spend maybe 30 minutes focusing on Run of Slay the Spire, 30 minutes doing really invested analysis about something in the own of of the spire and then 30 minutes just talking with chat and my talking with chat will involve sharing stories from my own life but it'll also just involve talking with them about their stories one of the tricky things about content creation in a live community is that you aren't bringing all of the creative energy to your show uh, different from a podcast in that way where we are the only people who can speak here but when I have a live audience someone can come in and say anything um, just about unless the profanity filter catches it and so running with that talking about I don't know getting my wisdom teeth out or how it feels to love someone or what I think you should do if you lose your job or how I feel about this new sci-fi series it's a very conversational story but Those are the sorts of stories that I kind of tell in my day to day.
1: Speaking of outside sources of creative energy, I do have some questions from Twitter. Um, some of these, I feel like there was a chance they were trolls, so feel free if, if they're asking. I didn't understand <laughs> the questions, so if, okay. if they're asking about something that you know, you'd rather not get into, you can just uh, tell me to skip those. Uh, this sure. first one seems pretty innocuous, though. Uh, this is from Dave, who asks, uh, what's it like shifting from competing against others to competing in a single-player game where it's mostly about personal bests?
3: I think it's surprisingly similar. I don't think it changed much at all for me. I was never somebody who got hyped up about beating other people in poker. If anything, if someone was hard for me to play against, that made me want to become their friend and learn from them. And so if anything for me, competing in a single player game like Slay the Spire takes some of the frustration of having to wait for other people to make their decision or show up for the game or what have you out of my gaming experience um using humans as opponents in games for me is just kind of irritating Uh, i would rather not have to and i'll use the humans for my friends instead
1: and it seems like there is still, or I mean, there's potentially the element of still competing against other players. The first video of yours that I watched in, in your introduction to it, you mentioned being the first player in the world to, I forget the exact number, but you know, to, to beat the game on level 20 while alternating between the players and doing that, uh, or alternating between the characters and doing that like some X number of times in a row. So, I mean, I I don't get the sense that that kind of thing is like particularly important to you, but you did seem aware that, you know, you had achieved certain things in the game that other players had not.
3: Yeah, something that I have struggled with is how to present myself as good at Slay the Spire without presenting myself as better than other people at Slay the Spire. Because presenting myself as good at Slay the Spire is necessary for my job. I want people to tune in and trust that the things that I'm saying are like sensible and rational and will help them win in their own runs if they're trying to learn from me. But presenting myself as better than other people, that gets into like egos and competition. And Slay the Spire is a single-player game with no tournament scene, so it's not really a claim that can be substantiated. You can't really prove that. People play the game in different ways. So, when you try to compare your results to somebody else's results, you're not really comparing apples to apples. I don't know what the right way is exactly to prove that I'm good at a game like this without rubbing some people the wrong way with them interpreting that I'm saying that I'm better than them at it. I, I don't know. Insofar as I talk about my results relative to Slay the Spire players in the world as a whole, I'm just trying to say that I'm good at the game. That's really what I'm trying to establish.
1: Balrog 81 uh, asks, one of the key things in poker is bankroll management. Is there a parallel either in Slay the Spire or streaming in general?
3: Bankroll management is so fascinating. It's one of the ways in which poker strategy extends past the actual game of poker into this other realm, the real world, or whatever you might call it. Streaming's career with very little job security. Uh, Mixer, which was Microsoft's competitor against Switch, shut down overnight. And all of the streamers who had used Mixer for an income source just didn't have the website anymore. It was kind of similar to Black Friday, I guess. You like woke up in the morning and the website was gone. I try to think about having money in savings in the eventuality that my career disappears, but there's, there's no risk of me losing $50,000 one day and thinking oh if i lose $50,000 how am i going to have enough money to play on tables tomorrow <laughs> maybe i would have taken a day off <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: um in streaming it's like $10,000 for startup costs in terms of uh computers and office equipment and uh audiovisual stuff and then That's going to cover you for as long as you want to do this job. And if you start to not make enough money to pay rent, you're going to notice that from quite a long way out, probably.
1: How in the cockatoo. How does game theory in 2024 make the world better?
3: Oh my gosh. If we had a society that was truly game theory literate, like everybody had a postgraduate game theory uh, degree. People knew more about game theory than I did. Uh, I think our world would be a vastly, vastly, vastly different place. I've made videos about like the prisoner's dilemma and the (laughs) tragedy of the commons, you know, the the more well-known game theory tableau, which seem like they apply very obviously to the world that we live in today and really to any world where humans organize together as a society. And I've gotten really good responses from people who say like, oh, this made me realize that. You know, picking up trash in the park would probably be a reasonable thing for me to do if I wanted to live in a nice neighborhood or something like that. And so, yeah, I made a video there. Somebody picks up trash in the park now. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a world where people all understood game theory and acted sensibly and caringly toward each other with regards to it. It would be lovely, though. This is kind of like my utopia almost in my head.
1: Yeah, I've, I've had the thought that... um certain things that I would consider important for like justice might require uh some some zero sum trade-offs where like some people who currently have things uh give up things so that other people can have things. And I understand that like politically those are difficult to accomplish. But I do like I think there's a lot of room for positive sum interactions that are also difficult to act on. And that's far more frustrating.
3: Yeah, that's a good distinction to make. I don't think I ask many people to give anything up uh, in like my requests of people. Like sometimes I'll say like, here's something that I think about in order to be what I consider to be a good person in the world. Like somebody who is leaving places where I go better than they were when I found them is one of the big metrics that I look at and whether I'm making positive change in the world. And I very, very, very seldom say anything that would require anyone to do more than, you know think for five minutes about how they were interacting with some sort of system in the world maybe and make zero impact on themselves changes which resulted in positive change outside of them if you wanted to get into people actually giving up the stuff that they had and like yeah we could do a lot we can do a lot with that uh
1: crucial what's worse 10 hours of poker a day or 10 hours of league of legends solo queue
3: <laughs> oh no The last time I played League of Legends solo queue, I actually really enjoyed it because I wasn't interested in winning anymore. I just, it was like the beginning of last year. I had a couple of weeks where I didn't have any projects for a while and I installed it to play with friends and then decided to keep playing solo queue after I was done playing with friends. And like the colors were pretty. I just muted chat and ran around. I decided to jungle and punch some people. Uh, It was actually kind of a vibe. So I think I'd go with... uh, Poker is actually worse.
1: (laughs) I should. I want to clarify something about this question because I'm not terribly familiar with League of Legends. I assume this is a game that's typically played as part of a team, and so when you solo queue, that means that you're just getting put on a team with like random people.
3: It's kind of a meme of like this is the most toxic environment that you could be on (laughs) uh, online.
1: Duncan Palamortis, who is actually a a very recent uh, guest of ours on this very show. What are some key aspects in a PVE game, uh, player versus environment game to keep it fresh and can make it potentially, potentially indefinitely replayable?
3: The thing that is going to frustrate so many game developers over the course of their careers is they are going to spend so long focusing on things which aren't user interface. They're going to create beautiful art and great narrative and fun mechanics and spend a lot of time balancing their games And then people are going to not play the game because the user interface is bad. And the more that I play games, the more I think like every game's basically just the same thing. Like you're, you're min-maxing, you're doing strategic trade-offs, you're thinking the cost of this outweighs the benefit, et cetera. You do this in every strategy game pretty much. And the thing that makes it fun or not is whether the user interface is nice to interact with. I thought that about poker too, for what it's worth. Like I had, once I got my auto hotkeys set up and everything like that, a lot of the fun of poker was just that I was making strategic decisions in a very smooth user interface. It's a frustrating answer because people who are interested in developing games are probably not that interested in developing user interfaces. But I do think it's the thing that you have to work really hard on for a game to succeed.
1: I think this might actually explain a lot of what would otherwise look like market inefficiencies in online poker, where you can make a lot more money playing on some sites than others. And the difference is mostly dealing with a bad user interface.
3: Yeah. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Keep your money.
1: <laughs> um, who else do we have on here? Alan Harold. will Stephen ever give us a three-hour PowerPoint on the Monty Hall problem?
3: Maybe. The the tricky thing about the Monty Hall problem is understanding all the ways in which someone might get it wrong. That's kind of like research that one has to do, I think. Like I could make a 10-minute presentation on the Monty Hall um, problem, no problem. But if we're going to fill it out to three hours, then it starts to get into like trying to understand exactly where the logic fails for some people. And that's an extensive project. It could be a fun one, though.
1: I assume quite a lot of uh, digital ink has been spilled on this already. What do you think you uniquely could bring to the table in explaining the Monty Hall problem? Let me think about that
3: for a second, because you've inadvertently really asked me something about my entire career. I think. Okay, right, so like Netflix recently released some sort of show that cost them millions of dollars to make, and you could spend eight hours watching it in a day, right? So why do? people watch me run a solo live show that has almost no budget going into it and has no editing or really very much writing or thought going into what I do. <laughs> Why do they choose to watch me do that over teeing into Netflix? There's a my video about the Prisoner's Dilemma. I was just like in a huge state at 2 a.m. Uh, one night, and I was really frustrated thinking about blind v blind in tournament poker, actually. And I uh, got my drawing tablet and turned it on and just like drew some stuff and talked for 20 minutes and published it. And that video was very successful for some reason. Not, not like viral successful, but like in terms of the number of views that I get on a video I make, a lot of people were quite interested in it. I think that there's value in having someone talking to you, describing strategical elements and mechanics who you feel you can trust and who you feel you know a bit about and who is comfortable and approachable to you and i think that's one of the things that i do i think people also just enjoy my tangents a lot like i will start off talking about something else and then i will find some way to say and that's why you should be kind to people um and maybe you know we travel through a couple of different countries along the way
2: you also just describe why people listen to this show It's (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's
2: <laughs> it's not an awful
3: type of content to be putting in the world I don't think great
1: I sometimes wonder I'm curious if you have thoughts on this whether we should make those tangents explicit like should you come out and say and this is why you should be kind in the world or are you better off just like being that example and and letting it speak for itself so that you know I, I guess what I'm wondering is like by calling attention to it are you in some ways creating resistance to it as opposed to just sort of, letting it exist as an example, or as a, a, a subconscious meme, maybe?
3: That's a really great question. It depends on your audience. How is the person watching going to receive it or listening? And that's going to change from person to person. I think you do a bit of both. Uh, make sure that the people in your audience who aren't going to immediately recognize the example that's being given to them and what it means, make sure that they are having the dots connected for them at some point. But You don't need to reinforce that over and over and over again. I had writing my book, I had a couple of passages where I wrote a metaphor that I thought very clearly said, like, this kind of behavior is really bad and we obviously need to avoid it. And then my editor, who was outside the gaming space, said, I have no idea why you've just written like four pages about popping pimples. That seems like a strange addition (laughs) to your book about online content creation. And so i had to add a couple of paragraphs to actually connect the dots um it, it does really depend on your audience remembering that your audience is not inside your head and can't read your mind is something that i think is very important as somebody who was guilty of being on the other side of that for a lot of my life i used to think that i could kind of understand what was going on in somebody else's head and understand why they were saying the things that they were saying and then as I got more invested in relationships and dating and deep friendships and meeting people who were not the same as me I realized that a lot of the time I was wrong and why they were saying something was not the reason that I thought they were saying it
1: Leandro Magonza asks which is better the fixed wiring task in among us or the defect attack card claw
3: Cool. Two bangers. They're both great. I think I'm going to go with fix wiring. And the reason is that they added accessibility options to it. And I don't believe claw has had any specific accessibility options added to it. And maybe it should. Maybe it should have those.
1: Now we're getting into the potential troll questions. Moop simply says dig with a question. mark."
3: that's like the biggest meme on my channel. There's a relic in Slay the Spire that lets you dig for a new relic. So you get this relic and then you can dig for more relics over the course of the run and get lots and lots of relics in theory, although you're giving up a lot in order to do that. So it often sets you behind to try. Uh, And for some reason, someone made a bot command that said exclamation mark dig, and it just says dig relic dig. And it's the most used chat command in my channel in my life, and that's my legacy that I leave to the world, I guess, for better or worse.
1: <laughs> that's why I didn't skip these questions because I figured well they're either trolls or they're going to be you know fun fun inside jokes. Yeah, uh, and then the next one is just cat girls with a question mark. Girls?
3: Oh my gosh, my my Discord has a cat girl. I might politely refer to this as an infestation. <laughs> 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 there we eventually made a thread just for the cat girl of the day which is intended to contain the cat girls but they they tend to exit that thread they they breach containment you know
1: could, could we clarify what a cat girl is
3: it's a picture of a a, a girl with cat features like cat ears and whiskers and so on and so forth. And often it's like very like soft pastel sorts of drawings with like this kind of like lo-fi beats to relax and study too kind of vibes. Ah. Cat girl is reading a book by the window. Cat girl is doing some art. Cat girl is dancing in a meadow, kind of things. I, I do I do I like these? I, I mean they're pretty. I don't know. I'm not sure why we have a thread one of them every day (laughs) and they keep on they keep on breaching containment i don't know but but they seem inoffensive and fine
1: is it safe for me to click the heart on this comment then sure okay Uh, i know you're gonna have to go soon is there anything else that uh well either of you were hoping to talk about that we have not gotten around to yet
2: no me me i would just say like this last little bit was kind of interesting to me because it allows me i sometimes wonder what it's like for people who don't play poker to listen to poker talk and a lot of the gaming talk kind of gave me that vibe uh, <laughs> of like some of the you know we use words like ranges and uh, polarize and, and and different ways that they use in the general world even like even like i was like concerned like what the hell is a cat girl <laughs> and so so it was good to kind of get that definition and um kind of be a fly on the wall in a different environment for once
3: yeah, and to be honest, I am not one hundred percent sure what a cat girl is either. Uh, just kind of <laughs> overwhelmed by it all.
1: I suspect that might be part of the magic of cat girls.
3: Possible. I I have a little bit, and I do have one question. If you would entertain it, I would actually love to hear like what's your most theory heavy poker hand history that you can think of in the past little while. Like, as somebody who once paid two Bitcoin for a solver that could solve poker hands from the turn onward and no limit hold them heads up. How far could you blow me out of the water right now by talking about something you were thinking about
2: recently in one of your games?
1: All right, Liz, do you have an immediate answer for that?
2: Not an immediate answer, I guess. I, I mean, the the um, punchline is kind of in the um, description, but I kind of had like a an aha moment. I don't know if that's what you're looking for. But I had an aha moment recently when Andrew was talking to me about, and I'm not going to remember the details of this on the spot, but it was something like, there was a spot where, I think it was bluff catching, but there was a spot where you told me, this is from Thinking Poker Daily, I wish I could remember the episode, but you told me that it was better to have a worse hand in a certain spot because if your opponent has you beat than the worst hand so like let's say that
1: oh no i know what you're talking about this this is this is before the river this is like if you're if you're getting check raised on the flop you would rather have middle pair with a good kicker than top pair with a bad kicker is that what you're remembering yes yeah the, the reason being that top pair with a bad kicker is in
2: well, uh, I don't know if Steven wants this presented as a question that he can kind of solve, or does he okay. just want to, like, hear no, so that's, much... that's a good point. There, there's something with live
3: outs there, and there's something with implied odds and reverse implied odds. Definitely trying to balance ranges to defend against aggression with all the potential streets that follow uh, was something that always blew my mind, <laughs> so...
1: Yeah, I think you're on the right track there. The one other thing that I would add is, I mean, it's also just your immediate equity is is better. Um, you know, Your opponent's check-raising range should have mm. both, you know, both some top pair and some second pair in it. So your top pair with a bad kicker is actually doing less well against their top pair with a better kicker. And it's also less of a favorite against their middle pair that like if you have middle pair with top kicker, you're also doing better against their middle pair than when you have top pair with a, with a bad kicker. Like they have fewer chances to draw out on you when you are ahead.
2: So it's like being dominating and being dominated in, in both uh, parts of the range.
1: Right. Like a, a, avoiding domination while also dominating some part of their range.
2: We actually did a
1: um a whole episode not too long ago. Uh so there there used to be a, a different co-host on the show um prior to Carlos, uh, and he stopped really playing or paying attention to poker like probably close to three years ago now. And uh, we brought him back on the show somewhat recently, and and kind of talked about what are some of the things that we think would be most surprising to him um, from poker in the last three years. Uh, and so it's it's daunting to think about you know the last thirteen years, <laughs> what, would, right. what would be on there. But um, the the two things that came to my mind when when you were talking one or when asking that. One was, uh, and, and I mean, you already mentioned some some things around ICM, and uh, so maybe this wouldn't be as surprising to you, but you you will see solvers do things like at a final table where when when ICM is a significant factor, where they'll raise uh, half or maybe even more than half of their stack and still have some hands that will fold if the. Um, at least a certain, I mean, it would depend on what the action behind it is. But essentially like there there was a very simple heuristic that I used to use, which is just like, well, once a 30 year stack is in there, you're committed and there are many circumstances where that's not true as a blunt rule, but there are some circumstances where even much more extreme versions of that, where like you can put in half of your stack and still fold you know, before the flop. Um, so we're not talking about the river, where so, that, okay, you were bluffing, yeah. you got caught. Like you know, we're, you're always going to have uh, plenty of equity to Im- improve, but nevertheless, because of the ICM implications, it's going to be correct to to fold in those spots.
3: I, I see him as wild. I see him as wild. I, w- I watched someone talking about. I think it was Lex on Twitch who I have watched on occasion. He was playing some sort of table and he's talking about calling or folding in a big blind or maybe he's talking about raising or jamming in the small blind maybe actually. He was talking about like he wasn't talking about whether it was a plus EV play in this moment to make that play. He was talking about like whether it was reasonable from a meta perspective moving forward for him to be a player who against this opponent when in the small blind was jamming that wide and it almost sounded like the guy would send him a message angrily after the tournament being like hey you're jamming my big blind so wide. what what the hell's going on lex <laughs> yeah i don't know icm in tournaments has always just blown my mind
1: the um, the other one that I used to think was really fishy, and I mean, it was legitimately done by fish quite often, but just like shoving all in with ace-king offsuit pre-flop, even for very large sums, is actually not that bad or sometimes even good and like approved by the solver. So, uh, you know, tournament scenario, uh, and again, this happens more often in tournaments um, because there's the antis and things, but, you know, 40 big blind stacks, so we're, we're pretty deep here button min raises folds to you in like the small blind you know you you have a non-trivial number of hands where the solver is like yeah just go out and just shove 40 big blinds over that two big blind raise that's the best you're gonna do um when you have like an ace queen offsuit or something and that's it was another one of those things that i I can kind of make sense of when i think about it but i had for a long time constructed a heuristic in my head of just like you know, you can shove maybe up to like 10 times the original raise, but you know, get beyond that and you're in, you know, fish territory, scared to play after the flop. Uh, it turns out the solver is also scared to play certain hands after the flop, especially <laughs> from out of position.
2: Here's <laughs> a great example of that. So 40 bigs, um, just look this up in GTO wizard, 40 bigs, the button opens for 2.3 big blinds. The solver is completely fine, jamming, king seven offsuit for 40 bigs from the big blind well and it's not like it's not rare this is almost like a third of the time you're supposed to just jam this in
3: sail on sweet prince wow okay <laughs> have fun out there uh <laughs> i i remember when we found out you could overbet and no limit hold'em back in like 2009 or something oh my god i printed so much money because you just call Everyone like had watched this video and I was like, you can overbet bluff. People will fold. You, you just bet three times the amount that is in the pot on the river. No one can look you up with that. They don't have the nuts or anything. And I just like call with ace high and they missed their straight draw like every time <laughs> over and over and over again. Poker's wild.
1: Um, so for people who are interested in hearing more from you about you, where would you like to direct them?
3: Uh, I am Jorbs, J-O-R-B-S.
1: Oh, is that a Homestar Runner reference?
3: Kind of. uh, Yes. Yeah, it is. Pretty much.
1: That was just something I was curious about that I forgot to ask you.
3: Yeah. And I'm live on Twitch most days and then I have a YouTube upload on my main YouTube channel pretty much every day. And I have a secondary YouTube channel, which is stuff that is not Slow the Spire. Like there's a Boulder's Gate 3 playthrough going up there right now. And yeah, I just make comfy strategy gaming content here on the old internet.
1: This is probably a big question for you, but are there uh, games that you think uh, poker players in particular would enjoy checking out besides Slay the Spire?
3: Yes, so many. I am trying to think of any that would specifically appeal to poker players rather than just being games that I think would appeal to literally everyone.
1: If, if you'd like to think on this and and send me a list I can um read it in the introduction also
3: sure I do think that everyone should try playing Brotato in their life B-O-R-T-A-T-O it's it's a bro that's a potato you have six arms which can hold six guns and you run around in a circle shooting things it's kind of like Vampire Survivors if you've played Vampire Survivors except it's deliberately built to be a 20 to 30 minute long experience where you start from scratch each time and try to create a build which will survive 20 waves and beat the final bosses and i sunk uh, 500 hours into that last year or something <laughs> it's just it's just a really good game and you do have a lot of variance mitigation and strategic thought going to how you build your character which i think might appeal to a poker player
1: Awesome. Well, if you think of others, uh, I'll be happy to put those in the introduction. And it was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, this was great.
1: Take care. Take care.
0: The devotion of a car, my light, the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law I know you won't